You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 26. There's paint on the walls. You pick him up, you lick him, dung him, bongs right back. What a odd man for dinner. Hello, and welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison. So we're back. We took a little break to get all of our ducks in a row, and now those ducks are all lined up and ready to do whatever it is ducks do after you line them up. Before we start, I want to say we have a sponsor. Denver Orbit is brought to you by Product. Do you ever feel an aching need to constantly consume? Do you feel that there's just something out there that will make everything better if only you could just own it? Well, then Product is right for you. Every three days, Product will deliver a box full of product right to your door. You will open this box and feel instantly and deeply fulfilled. And when you're done with this box of product, more product will always be on the way right to your door. How does Product do all of this? Product has eliminated all of the middlemen. All of them. So sign up for Product today and start your new life. Product. Because consumption is all. So let's get started with today's show. Today's show is actually built around a theme, which is a little unusual for us. That theme is street art. Denver has a pretty vibrant scene here, and we thought, why not do an episode around it? So, we talked to Adam Lerner from MCA Denver, and Corey Anderson from Rebel Tours and 303 Magazine about all of this. And uh, we've got a great song sandwiched right in the middle from Machu Linea. But first, if you're doing something you think would sound good in someone else's ears, you should reach out to Denver Orbit. We cast a pretty wide net here on this show, so it could be just about anything. Maybe an interesting personal story, a song, a poem, an essay, some weird noise thing you've been cooking up. Just drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com. Let's make some art. So, let's just jump right into the show. We're going to start with Adam Lerner. I initially suggested we do an interview around the history of street art, but Adam had a more interesting and, and frankly, a better idea. When I was 11 years old, in the spring of 1984, two movies came out that had a huge impact on the kids at Stedman Elementary School, Breakin' and Beat Street. Breakdancing was the thing we paid the most attention to, of course, and true confession time here, although I tried, I was a terrible breakdancer, so that faded pretty quickly from my view, anyway. But there were a couple of other things from those two movies that stayed with me. Hip-hop, and, especially in the movie Beat Street, graffiti. Graffiti itself isn't new, of course. Making art directly on walls or other surfaces has been around since the dawn of man. But that was the first time I really noticed those now iconic pictures of graffiti-covered walls and notably subway cars. At the time, in news reports and movies, often those subway cars were kind of used as a visual signifier for urban decay. But also around that time, street art began showing up in other places too, like art galleries and even in people's homes. Artists like Keith Haring and Basquiat brought a more experimental approach to the form. And over the years, 
other artists kind of began to enter this space as well. To name a few, there's the traditional graffiti artists like Lee Quinones, Zephyr, Lady Pink. There's those huge, brightly colored murals of the twin brothers who make up Os Gemios, and of course, the politically subversive stylings of Black Larad and some guy named Banksy. And there's many, many more who continually add to this rich tradition. But for all of this, there's a place you won't see much graffiti or street art at all. And when you stop and think about it, that absence is kind of glaring. And I'm talking about modern and contemporary art museums. All the magazines that contemporary curators read, the art fairs, the, the museum exhibitions, they just focus on a different body of artists. And it's, it occurred to me about two years ago um, that like there's just something totally wrong with the, the system when so many people who are truly having an impact on our culture um, are just not even a part of the world that is the museum uh, world of you know, curatorial expertise and exhibition making. This voice belongs to... I'm Adam Lerner, and I'm the Mark G. Falcone Director and Chief Animator at the Museum of Contemporary Art. I stopped by MCA Denver recently to chat with Adam about the role of contemporary art museums in the world of street art. He began by talking about his own blind spot with this art form. Here I am, like, I've been a curator of contemporary art for 20 years. You know, I've, you know organized dozens of exhibitions. Um, I've written like several books. I have a PhD for God's sakes, you know, and, um, and yet like all of the major, major artists in the field um, of street art, graffiti were basically unknown to me until about two years ago when I started to work with Roger Gastman uh, on an exhibition here at MCA Denver on um, the history of graffiti. So then what brought the world of graffiti into focus? Why did MCA wind up showing an exhibition on the history of street art at all? You know, I had this profound experience, uh, even just a little bit before then, that, that really um, shook my, uh, my own sense of arrogance about my knowledge in the field. I was looking for the right word, and I think maybe arrogance is, really, is, 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 is it, although it implies that I've lost that, and I probably still have that. <laughs> um, and, and, and that is that when I, I curated this exhibition of uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, who was the lead singer of the band Devo, and a lot of people know him from that. A lot of people know him also as the person who composed music for a lot of the Wes Anderson films. Um, and I met him in, back in 2011, and... I immediately had this sense that he was the most creative person I'd ever met and probably like one of the m- most creative forces in American culture uh, the last 50 years. And it was weird for me because even though I really, really just believed in him as this important cultural figure and somebody who I just thought of as being um, uh, like such a kind of missing link in, in, in telling the story of art that sort of took this other alternative path, uh, you know, from Andy Warhol to, to, you know, the present day. I guess I only really, really liked about 
a quarter of his art. I just, you know, I thought he was so important and I, and I, and I wanted to tell his story because it was, it felt it was a story that hadn't been told, but his art sort of came from this sort of 1960s, um, underground comics kind of art crumb sort of world that, that, that is basically very foreign to the tastes of us curators who, who tend to like things, um, a little bit more, uh, obscure, a little bit less, you know, obvious this idea of like narrative the idea of having characters we were it was like completely foreign to the world of like a you know museum or a curator and um but but that was okay i could tolerate a little bit of you know caricature because i thought he was had an interesting story but then as i was curating this exhibition it took me a few years to really understand his work and during that time i went through books and books and books that he had compiled of his own drawings he compiled about thirty thousand drawings and as I'm going through all of his material to try, try to understand him as an artist better, um, just to be able to be a good curator of his exhibition, I had to sort of see everything he'd done. And unfortunately, he was a guy who did a whole hell of a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, and I went through boxes and boxes of material, things that had been unopened for years, and, um, and just like try to get inside his mind. And this crazy thing was happening as I was sort of flipping page after page of these, you know, 30,000 drawings is that uh, over the course of these 20 or so trips to LA while I was curating the show, I found myself actually starting to really love the images that I, that I was seeing and not just sort of appreciate their value. Like I actually felt my tastes changing and that was a really powerful experience for me because because beforehand i thought oh like i have clearly sophisticated taste because i'm an art museum curator and this other stuff the reason that it doesn't get exhibited in museums is because well it's just not sophisticated like like clearly my taste is sophisticated <laughs> but but actually what i really got to see is that no it's just it's it's actually a little bit arbitrary how your tastes get formed so while Art museum curators are trained to think of themselves as connoisseurs, you know, just like the adjudicators of what is good quality. And, and that's all true, actually, within this very narrow world that they define for themselves, within this very narrow framework, like that taste works and holds sway. But it doesn't work as soon as you break out of that world and sort of enter into a whole new arena and, and, and accept new sort of starting point for what counts as good. And, and that's when, like, I realized that there is no, you know, stable point in a changing world. So this all kind of begs the question, why don't you see street art in museums? After all, it's not like it's a low profile kind of thing. Banksy is one of the most talked about artists in the world. I think it's partly uh, just the sort of snobbery and injustice. <laughs> you know, it's just that curators of contemporary art, art curators in general, like sort of think of themselves as owning the field of art, that basically they're the people who are making judgments as to what counts as good or bad. And they sort of think of themselves as surveying the landscape of art and seeing um, and, and what is the best work and then bringing that to the museum. And unfortunately, what they're looking at is, is actually um, a very narrow sort of sample size based upon the institutions that they grow out of. So people who grow out of um, an art world, so, so people who grow out of like an academic training, um, they learn the sort of history of art that sort of maybe, you know, in, in the modern field, you know, would 
maybe have a milestone in Marcel Duchamp and then go to another milestone in Andy Warhol and then Damien Hirst. And, and it has a sort of lineage, um, has a legacy that they get and they sort of think of themselves as sort of working in that tradition. And therefore, they don't really think that it's just one tradition. It's not the entire field of art. But, you know, it's not like Adam's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, uh, curatorially speaking, anyway. Now, I want to say that I do believe there is value to the fine art tradition as a tradition, uh, of course. And, I, and I, everything that I'm saying here is to say, like, but I'm not saying like I totally abandon you know the history of art you know that you know began with you know Marcel Duchamp and modern you know, produced our modern art that we have today. I am just saying that it's much much broader. Like there is a unique value in in museum in the museum art tradition and the art school tradition that you know that I could just you know maybe just say now this way I can. Um, not have to say it again and apologize uh, for trashing that world again. And, and I, I do want to just say that, um, you know, there is something unique that happens when um, people attend art school and there is a compounding of knowledge that occurs over generations and people are forced over years of sort of schooling to to really examine their own style and um, really be critical and look at themselves from the outside. I think that there's something that people, be, the level of sophistication that people develop when there's an academic sort of discourse around them, that people like learn a language, you know, to use to speak about art. And then therefore they, they can parse the issues that they're exploring a little bit more finely. And, and, um, I, and the curatorial model, like artists who engage in conversations with curators, you can also develop some more sophistication um, so I think there is unique value to the art tradition that's hard to get out outside of it. But on the other hand, um, there's something that is so true about art that derives a little more directly from culture. I think that street art, precisely because it's not filtered through those kinds of institutions in, in quite the same way, um, as the field of the history of contemporary art is I actually think that um, street art actually has the ability to um, be a much more direct expression of us as a, as a people. I think that um, when you look at contemporary art, just to sort of take a slice from a you know, contemporary art fair, um, you won't get a really good sense of like, our culture and who we are. I actually think that you might get a pretty good sense of our culture if you take a, a slice of uh, street art. I think that it gives you a little bit of a, a better indicator about urban life in a way that I think uh, contemporary art doesn't quite give you that. So there's, I think there's positive and negative in, in each. They, they each gain something and lose something, but, um, but I think that they're, but they're both equally as important. Of course, presenting something as ephemeral as graffiti in an art museum presents its own set of challenges, both philosophical and institutional. There are people who will say that street art has no place in a museum, and um, I think that there's some um, truth to the fact that uh, there's no way of actually replicating the organic nature of 
street art that's made on the streets um by especially that's you know some guerrilla venture you know um at night uh, illegally and um, and that's and that's true that you know you, that that's but that's part of the fabric of culture, and it's the job of the museum to um, take some distillation of the fabric of our culture, and take some version of that and be able to um, put it in a clean space so that people can focus their attention a little bit more on that one element and say, oh, that there that's happening in our culture that I see every day, that's interesting. Let me look at that more closely. And so what you do is you ask the artist to produce some version of what they do um, for the gallery. And some artists like, um, like Pose, um, he will produce a different body of art than you know for the studio than he will for um, uh, that he, on the streets. And um, there's, in fact, a lot of artists today who um, began illegally working on the streets, um, began as graffiti artists, and maybe now they have a studio practice where they sell prints and they sell paintings um, in galleries, um, but also might do some work on the street on the side, or they might do commissioned murals um, on the side or as part of their practice. And I think that the street art tradition is unique in the, in the sense that it has, you know, one foot, you know, in the, in the street, it has one foot in the studio. Um, if maybe has a, a third foot in the, uh, in the mural world. Finally, we talked about Denver's street art scene and how that kind of plays a role in the future of MCA Denver. Yeah, I know. I think that um, I've been really impressed by the the artists who I've met in Denver, the street artists I've met. I think that, you know, just like you have like such incredible uh, maturity of talent within the city, um, you know, I've just been really impressed by people like Anthony Garcia and um, like the whole crush community. And I think that they really uh, have like a very strong sense of um, uh, belief in what they've achieved over the last, you know, I don't know how many years. But um, and, and, and they feel I, I feel like in general, like rightly, um, like they're being recognized right now in this moment that the city is giving them some walls to work on and you have, you know, a lot more space. You know, MCA actually has always been interested in looking at the tradition of art and also the tradition that's outside that. And so therefore, even before we became interested in um, street art and started to show uh, artists like um, Cleon Peterson, who we recently exhibited, um, you know, we, uh, we always sort of like to think of ourselves as both a museum and also a laboratory for the future of museums. Um, I have this feeling always that in 50 years, what's gonna be considered great art is not just the artists who we maybe didn't think much of today, but actually 
what, what's going to be considered great art of this period are probably people who we didn't even define as artists. You know, we don't know. We really don't know. It might be musicians. It might be people who are doing things for the web. It might be it might be tattoo artists. Um, and therefore, like, we're constantly exploring what is the outside of what is now because I really think that, you know, that's all that's all there in our culture. And, you know, like we always like to think about not just the art tradition, but what's outside it. As mentioned, Adam Lerner is the Mark G. Falcone Director and Chief Animator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. MCA Denver will have a new exhibition up of Tara Donovan's Fieldwork starting September 21st, so go see that. Up next is a song from Denver musician Machulinia. This track is called Blackberry, featuring Rare Birds.
After releasing three albums as producer of The Circus House, Armando Garibay is now producing music under the name Machulinia. Genres bend to accommodate the wide range of Denver talent that is being assembled for the upcoming fall release of their album, Girl. From deep house grooves to psychedelic hip-hop, the album contains sounds that will transport you from the sweaty after-hours club to the other side of the galaxy. You can see Machulinia this Sunday, September 2nd, at the Temple Tantrum Festival in Rhino at 1 p.m. That's a two-day music and art festival here in Denver. You should go to that too. Machulinia's album Girl is going to be released this fall. So finally today, we've got an interview from producer Shannon Geis with Corey Anderson talking about Denver's street art scene. Street art is booming here in Denver. You can see interesting pieces of art on nearly every commercial stretch in the city. Corey Anderson is a writer and editor for 303 Magazine, and she's been giving street art tours since April of this year, so I decided to meet up with her to learn a little bit more about what's going on in Denver's street art scene. We met up on a windy day in August outside the Denver Central Market on the corner of Larimer and 27th Streets. That's in the Rhino Arts District, the epicenter of the Crush Walls Urban Art Festival and one of the best areas to see street art in Denver. So my name is Corey Anderson and I started the Street Art Network at the beginning of this year as a way to give proper credit to artists in Denver that are doing street art and graffiti and also to explain a lot of questions to, or a lot of answers to people about how to do street art, um, why people do street art, what it's like to do street art in Denver, and uh, everything in between. And so one of the reasons why I have the expertise that I do with all of this is that I started writing for the local publication 303 Magazine uh, nearly three years ago and have been covering the art scene in Denver, including street art, pretty extensively. One of the first things you'll notice about the walls along this stretch of Larimer is the saturation of street art. Nearly every surface that could be painted is and Crush for the last eight, going on nine years, has been transforming this neighborhood, specifically where we are right now, which is by Denver Central Market. And so something that 
Crush has done for this area that is unlike other play areas in Denver is the saturation, right? So every every alley, every street that we see, there are murals, there are pieces of graffiti, um, and it's all really quite world-class to this point. Um, and so this year, this entire area that we're in right now will be transformed again, and that makes my tours interesting in this area specifically because uh, that means that I have a rotating roster, right? And a lot of street art in other areas might be up for three, four, five years. And in Rhino, it's generally one or two years. We, there are some murals here that have been here for three and four, and those are kind of like these old staple pieces for the neighborhood. As we start walking around the neighborhood, Corey emphasizes that she really wants to feature local artists on her tour. Uh, this piece of this mural, this piece of street art that I really enjoy uh, from Crush last year is a Denver artist who, uh, his name is Mike Graves. He wasn't born in Denver, hasn't lived in Denver his whole life, but he's been here long enough that I consider him a Denver artist. And he always makes these really fun, silly, kind of whimsical characters, uh, a lot of which he draws or he thinks up with his younger daughter. She'll sometimes be on site uh, helping him paint or enjoying him painting, which I really appreciate. We'll see if she eventually becomes a street artist herself. Um, but I think that, that it lends a lot to his really funny character work. I also think sometimes he puts some of himself in the pieces. Um, usually there's a, a man with shorter brown hair, <laughs> so it's kind of autobiographical. Um, and so Mike, he's done pieces all over Denver. He has another one in Rhino that's one of the older ones on Crema Coffee. Um, and he also has pieces on illegal peats around Denver. So really he's seen in, in every neighborhood. There's some artists that really stick to one neighborhood, but Mike is one of those that you'll see all over the place. One of the most common questions that comes up is what's the difference between street art and graffiti? Um, something that I say is that graffiti is not necessarily always illegal and street art is not necessarily always commissioned. And so the difference that I see in those two things is that it's a stylistic difference. And so with graffiti writing, it's going to be that classic idea of graffiti that you, see, that you think of, um, especially from the 80s and 90s with skateboard culture. Um, and then street art is what I like to call murals. And a lot of times I've heard graffiti writers, um, usually younger graffiti writers, talk about how you know, street art is living on their coattails and graffiti writers have paved the way for street art. And I always laugh at that a little bit because murals, from an artistic standpoint, have been around for a very long time. Corey attributes some of the rise of street art in Denver to the influx of transplants to the city. In Denver, when I was growing up, nearly 30 years ago, uh, there was really not that much street art. There was some graffiti, definitely a lot of illegal graffiti, and illegal graffiti has gone down in the last few years because of the proliferation of you can get paid for this, like what's the point of possibly getting in trouble if there's a chance that you could get paid to do it and not get in trouble. Um, but I think that more than anything, especially in the last three years, like you were saying, the rise in street art and the rise in the appreciation of street art has come majorly from the people that have been moving here. And as a Colorado native, with a lot of Colorado native friends, I hear people complaining about transplants all the time. And for me personally, you know, I, I do thank them for a lot of what's happened here because Denver was kind of a cow town when I was growing up. It was not like my favorite city to go to and I've traveled a lot and seen a lot of cities. And so I think a lot of that has to do with people moving here and bringing their culture and their acceptance and tolerance and understanding of street art from other cities that have more of it. 
Of course, the rise in street art has gone hand in hand with the rise of gentrification, which hasn't been good for everyone, particularly in areas like Rhino. Rhino, unfortunately, is an example of gentrification that's negative in the sense that it dis displaced people. And so there are a couple artists that are more in the north side of Rhino that I point out who grew up here and started creating work here and really had some iconic pieces in Rhino um, and that no longer can afford to live here. Not even if they wanted. I mean, not even with commissioned murals or whatever. They just can't afford it. And so I think that there's a lot of bad examples of what's happening in, in Rhino and I think that if you look at it kind of briefly, then it looks like there's a causation there, right? Like all the street art kind of equals this gentrification. And unfortunately, <laughs> I agree with that to a certain extent. I think that in the last few years, there's been a couple developers in Rhino who have tried to use street art for their benefit. Um, but I think that especially in this last year, that has been illuminated to everyone else and now there's a lot going on to curb that, to slow that uh, that trend in, in that direction and to really address those problems head on and to, and to talk about it. I think that the biggest, the first thing that we all need to do is say, is say, is there a causation between the street art and the gentrification? And if there is, then, then how can we change that? How can we make that better? How can we make it so that the artists that are making these places valuable property-wise are able to stay there, are able to, you know, be subsidized or rent control or whatever it needs to be. Um, so in a lot of ways, as much as it's bad, I think that it opens a lot of communication and a lot of topics to discuss as a city in a, in a, in a whole. And I also think that Rhino is specifically interesting to look at from that point of view because there's other neighborhoods that are almost following in Rhino's steps. And I think it's really important for us to say, okay, let's not let this happen in this other neighborhood. Let's make sure that when artists are coming in and painting these walls that they're getting paid. Let's make sure, I mean, like I said, a lot of what has been painted in Rhino in the last three years hasn't been paid for. And so when you look at it like that, yeah, it looks really bad. <laughs> and so I think more than anything else, it can be a perfect example of how we can do better as a city because obviously people like street art. We want it, like whether or not you're, you're rich and you can afford whatever apartment you can get or you are living on the streets. I mean, I have had both people come up to me and talk to me about street art in the same terms. As street art becomes more accepted and celebrated, there is talk of normalizing and standardizing the process of paying for murals and other street art. With a wide range of skills and styles, it can be difficult to value the work fairly. And so that's also something that I work on with the Street Art Network is commissioning murals and trying to get artists paid rather than the age-old, you can do it for exposure line. Someday, Corey hopes that Denver will feel like an open-air gallery with art of all kinds gracing the walls of our buildings. For now, she's just excited to help others get more acquainted with the scene. You know, I see we start with Mike Graves on Crema Coffee, and I talk about his character work and drawing with his daughter, and then we end at the Crush parking lot where we see that other piece of his, and someone will say, hey, that's the guy that we saw at the beginning of our tour. Um, and so that's something that, that I love about my tours is, is taking people on an hour and a half walk and showing them 80 pieces of art and by the end of it they're starting to recognize different art or the same artists that did different pieces. Um, if that happens, you know, I feel like my job has been, has been done properly. You can learn more about Corey's street art tours at thestreetartnetwork.com 
And you can check out the Crush Walls Urban Art Festival happening September 3rd through 9th in Rhino. Shannon Geis is a freelance audio producer and oral historian who loves telling stories, exploring historic places, and traveling. You can hear more of her work at shannongeis.net and here on Denver Orbit. Corey Anderson is an art and culture writer at 303 Magazine as well as the founder of Rebel Tours. You can find her on Instagram and, as usual, we'll have links to all of this in the show description. And if you want to see any of the art talked about here, you should go to Crush Walls starting September 3rd in the Rhino District in Denver, and we'll have a link to that in the show description as well. Denver Orbit is produced by me, and I will see you again in two weeks. <laughs>